The preaching of God's Word this evening is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, and at verse 18. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 18. Having mentioned sins and iniquities, and speaking of Christ's sacrifice, we read this solitary verse, Hebrews 10, verse 18. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Now, brethren, you and I know something, I trust, of the burden and the weight upon our souls and consciences of our own sin. There is no burden like unto an enlightened conscience looking upon our own sins against the law of God and against our holy God Himself. And there is this concern that grips us and our mind almost panics when we think back to those occasions when our souls have been brought under conviction, what are we going to do with this burden? What are we going to do with our guilt, which justly calls out as for the judgment of God? Think of it for a moment. There are cunning ways that uh, people have now sought to protect uh, finances of banks. And so uh, bank robbers come and then there are uh, money, uh, uh, currency that's put in, but within, bound up with it, there's an ink bomb that will explode. There's a tracker device in it. There's sirens that go off. All of these different things. Now think of this for a moment. When we've sinned without conviction, we go along quite pleasantly. And then all of a sudden, as it were, our conscience becomes awakened. And it is as if the alarm is Uh, driving us insane, for we realize there's no escaping the judgment of God. Try what we could. We cannot get it away from ourselves. But notice the text. It speaks of a blessed word. And oh, how precious every word is in the Word of God. It speaks of remission. Remission comes from a word meaning to send away, thus to remit is to pardon, it's to dismiss, it's to forgive. Physically, it's as if something that is present is now removed entirely. Spiritually, that which has been committed and has defiled and made guilty the soul is now removed. And you'll notice that this remission has come, as context shows, by the offering of Notice verse 12, this man, speaking of Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Oh, the blessed truth of Christ. It speaks of him, verse 14, that by his offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And it appeals to the promise of the Old Testament spoken by the Spirit that it is, verse 17, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Try as it might, it's being said, the guilt, the sin, the iniquity of His people cannot be found, cannot be discovered, because they have been dismissed. Never to haunt the soul again. All of this comes by way of 
the work of Christ. The chapter sets before us the shadow of good things to come. And let us always remember, the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is not one of bad versus good, but is one of good versus better. The Old Covenant is good. Why? Because it holds forth the same hope. Forgiveness, pardon, and peace, fellowship with God, all by the promised Mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it does so in lesser ways, perhaps, than under the New. And so these bloody sacrifices multiplied again and again, over and over. The priesthood, the Levites, the institutes, and the ordinances of the temple, and preceding it, the tabernacle, the prophecies and shadows of all of these things, and yet all of them united harmoniously, pointing to the promised Savior. The Old Covenant is good. It is an older administration of the covenant of salvation known as the covenant of grace. And yet, brethren, we ought to have no hesitation in affirming that the new covenant is better. It's not better because different in substance. It's better because clearer in light. It's better because no longer anticipating the Savior to come. It declares the Savior who has come. No longer is it anticipating a work to be accomplished. It rather appeals to the work that has been accomplished. And so we stand in greater privileges than our forefathers in the faith under the Old Covenant. And so, brethren, before us is one such privilege that we no longer come and gather with the bleeding of sheep following around us. We no longer bring to a priest an animal that is to be sacrificed, testifying of what we deserve, and as it were, being received as a substitute. We come rather, as the passage is demonstrating, in the knowledge of Christ who has offered up Himself as our substitute, and by His offering up, our sins forgiven. So before us is this truth that Christ's sacrifice so forgives and pardons our sins that there is no new offering needed. Now, we may be tempted to say this is basic, elementary, level 101 type of information. And we're right. It is fundamental. It is foundational. It is true uh, that every visible saint ought to know this truth. However, even as this chapter displays, there is a danger of us, as it were, veering away from this truth. You can see it in church history as through the ignorance that started to prevail. There was the development of the Lord's Supper being made a new sacrifice. So this is the formal teaching, understand this, of Roman Catholicism, that at every administration of the Lord's Supper, there is literally a new sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can see that kind of thought and how necessary it is for us daily even, and certainly generationally, to come into assent to this truth. Where remission of these is, where sins are truly pardoned, 
where the offering has been effective to take away the guilt of our sins, there is no more offering for sin. But it's not only in that theological realm of disagreement and debate. It's also true in the experience of our own souls. Because when, as Christians, we sin, we still experience conviction. We experience shame. And brethren, it ought not to be otherwise. That we who are children should, as it were, take up the posture of a rebel again is most shameful, is most wicked. Our sins are worse as Christians than our sins were prior to faith. And brethren, when these things come to our minds, a subtle temptation can come to grip us to say, what am I going to do in order to remove this blot from my soul? And such a truth as this is most precious in the eyes of the believer. That there is remission of sins, but not by what you and I can do, will do, or resolve to do, but rather by the sacrifice and offering that Christ has already performed. And so when we understand this, it gives us that to which we are to look. Not as something being done newly, but as that which has been accomplished, to which we look freshly for the testimony that our sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ. We'll consider then three things to help us with this. Firstly, how Christ's offering is, as we can say, the true offering. Secondly, that Christ's offering is the effective offering. And lastly, that Christ's offering is the final offering. Now, in one sense, each of these points includes and assumes the other. That if it's the true offering, it's effective and it's final. If it's final, it's true and effective. And so you can see all these things together. However, it's helpful for our minds, which need to be led little by little, to discern these things in their own place. So consider in the first place how Christ's offering is the true offering. Now, this isn't to discount that offerings made under the Old Covenant weren't genuine, but it is to say, in the language of this very chapter, that those sacrifices were a shadow of good things. So some of you can look at the floor right now, and the way the light's hitting, you can see your shadow. You might look at the shadow and say, that's my shadow. You might even be able to say, in one sense, and we would understand it, that's me. But none of us, technically considered, would understand you to be saying, that's really who I am. I'm that shadow. It's a faint likeness to your image. It's distorted. It's not perfect. It's blurred and other such thing. It's not exact and other such ways that we can speak of it. And the same is true of those sacrifices under the Old Testament. They're real sacrifices. They had a purpose, as we'll see, of God to minister unto the soul which was struck with conviction. But they were shadows of the true substance of what was to come. Now, 
if you and I are standing uh, around a room and as a partition much like this is there and someone behind the partition were standing and light was shining and you could see the shadow, you'd be able to say, I know that someone's back there. Why? Well, I don't see the person, but I see the demonstration that there is one back there. The shadow betrays the fact that someone is behind the partition. You can do this in all sorts of ways. A shadow shows that something is blocking the source of light and is displaying then casting a shadow upon the ground. It's a message in one sense testifying of the presence or of the coming of one from behind what we can't see. And this is how the sacrifices under the Old Testament functioned. Notice even in Hebrews 10, it says something more than this. It says, verse 3, that in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Now this is perhaps striking to us, perhaps even startling. What do you mean? Uh, uh, How does the Bible say that the sacrifice actually reminded us of sin? Well, in several ways, the emphasized way here in this passage is this. Notice the statement that it is every year. And so in other words, the season of sacrifice comes, boom, it's done. A year passes, the same season comes again, Passover, uh, the Feast of uh, Tabernacles comes, sacrifices again. Now, if you're 15 years old, if you're 40 years old, if you're 60 years old, it doesn't matter. If you were a Jew living under the Old Covenant, you would have had your life functioning around these seasons of the sacrifices. And so you and I function in different ways. We order our days around perhaps birthdays or summers when school's in session. You have the fall and winter and spring and then summer comes. You have all of these different seasons that some way order our lives. So we think about, well, we'd like to take a trip somewhere. We're not going to do it in you know, the fall because that's when the children are in school. We're going to wait to take it at spring break or in the summertime. That's how our lives get ordered. If you were a Jew in the Old Testament, you would have ordered your lives around the feasts and the sacrifices. In fact, you would have ordered your day around the sacrifices. Now, it would have, it should have, and it did indeed creep into the minds of some, why are we doing this regularly? And as here the Apostle testifies, well, because there is the remembrance that your sins aren't finally answered for. These things aren't sufficient to answer for your sins. They are a shadow of that which is coming. So in other words, it was, as it were, the Old Testament worshipers looking through the blood of these sacrifices as a testimony that there is a greater sacrifice needed that must come Otherwise, we have no hope. Now, this doesn't mean their sins weren't pardoned, but they were pardoned on account of that which was to come. This is Paul's explicit testimony when he speaks of this in the book of Romans, testifying that it is, verse 25 of Romans 3, Christ God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness, listen to this language, for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. So whereas the 
atoning sacrifice of Christ, of course, is precious to us. The Jew under the Old Testament is looking to the trustworthiness of God to fulfill His Word that He would bring the ultimate sacrifice to pass. They did not rely upon the blood of beasts apart from as they were a shadow pointing to the blood of Christ. So in other words, every sacrifice was testifying, if Christ doesn't come, we are to perish in our sins. Now it's not as if it were haphazard, or if it were just a wish in their mind. They would have been looking through these things unto the promised hope of redemption to come. And so when John the Baptist sees, now you hear with new ears, by hearing with old ears, Jesus, and He says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now you see the point. He's saying all of these sacrifices are but shadows. Here is the true One, the real offering, the One to whom all of these shadows pointed. So these many offerings under the Old Covenant, daily, annual, festivals, and so forth, occasional sacrifices, were all so many testimonies that one, our sins demand death. And every sacrificial victim was a new testimony to us of that. It is an astounding thought that under the Old Testament, any should become hardened. What it testifies is of how wicked our depravity is. Because every sacrificial animal was a testimony of what the offerer deserved. But, as Hebrews tells us, it was also speaking to us that these sacrifices don't remit sin. They are, by the forbearance of God, so arranged that they would have a token of encouragement to know there's a greater sacrifice to come. Do you remember when Abraham is called to offer up Isaac, his son? And he brings his son, and the son Isaac says, Father, look, you know, I see the wood, I see the fire, and now here's the altar, but where's the animal? Where is the sacrifice? Do you remember what Abraham said? The Lord will provide it. And now, we might think, well, that's fulfilled in that ram that is caught in the thicket by his horns. And that's partially the case. But after the animal is sacrificed, it's said again, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen, it shall be provided. In other words, that ram that now takes the place of Isaac is not the ultimate provision. It's a temporary thing, as the other sacrifices. But Abraham, remember how Christ says it? Saw my day. And he rejoiced to see my day. He was glad to see my day. He was looking for my day. Because he knew that all of these things were but shadows. Moses, these were shadows. Unto David, these were shadows. Looking toward, anticipating Christ. Well, what is Christ? He is the true offering. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, there is the quotation from the book of Psalms, Psalm 40. Let it never stand to go unchallenged by you if someone says you sing psalms, you don't get to sing of Christ. That is utterly biblical 
nonsense. We not only get to sing of Christ, we sing the very words, thoughts, and actions of Christ. And so when we sing in Psalm 40, verses 6-8, through as we'll sing later this evening, Lord willing, we sing these very ideas. Notice verse 6 of Hebrews 10, quoting from this, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Do you understand this? The psalmist, yea, Christ Himself is saying, not one goat, not one bull, not one ox has ever satisfied divine justice. But what does He go on to say? Verse 7, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of Me to do Thy will, O God. It's Christ who comes to offer Himself, not the blood of bulls and goats, to offer up Himself. And that's why, as it says in verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. The offering by Christ of Christ Himself is the true sacrifice anticipated, prophesied, shadowed under the Old Covenant and fulfilled in time when Christ was offered upon the cross. Secondly then, the effective offering. We've seen that the shadowy offerings were ultimately ineffective. That is, they didn't actually satisfy divine justice. Sometimes we stand aghast when we hear some speak in such ways that, well, you know, the Old Testament was God's first plan and it failed. And you sort of ask them, well, how, please tell me, how would Abraham, Moses, David have been forgiven their sins if the new covenant hadn't come to pass? And oftentimes the answer is this, by the sacrifices of the animals. Well, scripturally, there's no support of that thought. Because scripturally, as we've seen, those sacrifices are anticipatory and divinely arranged to be an anticipatory uh, shadow. And so the sacrifices under the Old Testament were ineffective to procure remission of sins. In fact, as we've seen, by the repeated offering of those shadows, there is the remembrance again made of sins every year. Well, notice this offering of Christ. We read in verse 18, where remission of these is. Now, how is it that the remission has come to pass? It is, as we saw, the incarnation of Christ and the offering up of the body of Jesus Christ. The offering of His one sacrifice for sins. This one offering by which He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Here's the point. Christ's offering of Himself brings to pass 
the purposed effect. What's the purposed effect? It's the remission of sins. And so under the Old Testament, they're anticipating, they're longing for that one who should come. You remember when Christ is revealed, one takes him up and says, Oh, I rejoice, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Christ is the salvation. And now we look back and we see not only the person, but the work of Christ, the sacrifice, the offering of Christ. And what we see is the work that accomplishes the purpose of bringing forth pardon. And so it's His work upon the cross that brings to pass remission. So in other words, here's the point. Here stand our sins, and we could put ourselves together. Here stand all of our sins. We stand together united as those who are guilty of sin. But we could add to that. We could stand with all the Old Testament believers. And we could speak of David. We could speak of Abraham. We could speak of Lot. We could speak of all of those who are listed in the Scriptures. Samson and others. All together. And here's the fact. That together with the Old Testament believers, as we stand before the bar of justice, and all of our sins are listed in all of their particular and peculiar circumstances, all of their exacting detail, what the offering of Christ does effectively for every one of us is it takes all of those charges and removes them away. Now this isn't done by just as it were His taking of the guilt and somehow sort of tossing it out. It's done by His taking upon Himself our guilt and taking the punishment upon Himself. So if you go back to this thought, and oh, how can we imagine this? That one day, in fact, something like this will take place. Every one of us will be brought to the throne of Christ. Every one of us. Now think of this. Every one of us will hear every one of our sins. Secret, public, known, unknown. All of these things will be openly displayed. Your sins that cause you the most shameful embarrassment will be publicly displayed before all the world. Now, brethren, that may strike you as a burden unable to be borne. But remember this. Abraham's sins, Moses' sins, David's sins, my sins, your sins, all the Christians of the world in all time will there be openly acknowledged. But all of them will be openly acquitted as remitted by what cause? By the offering up of Christ. Notice verse 12. For sins. That's what's being spoken of in verse 18. Where remission of these is. Of what are, what are these? Verse 17. Their sins and iniquities. So all of our sins gathered up are now remitted, removed from us. Why? Because I want you to understand this. Imagine it this way. Your sins are removed from you and placed solely upon Christ. So if you were to look down the line of the most ancient ways until the earliest believer, you see Adam who anticipates longingly 
that seed of the woman who should come, and you see him way down the line, and every believer up until your time, and all the believers that follow after your time, and the long, oh, who among us can even begin to identify and quantify all of our sins, and all of the pages that it would take to fill volumes and volumes of your wicked thoughts, of your wicked desires, your words, your actions, your profanity, all of it, and all that volume, the multiple volumes are so stacked up above our heads, and we look and see all the sins of everyone else, and every volume has been gathered up and laid before the feet of Christ, so that there's nothing standing to testify against us. Why? Because Christ took upon Himself our sins, and suffered offering up Himself to pay for every exacting jot and tittle that we have transgressed. He offered up Himself for our sins, so that all of our sins, all of our guilt, is now remitted from us, removed from us. In other words, it's accomplished. We read elsewhere that as far distant as the east is to the west, Think of this language, so far hath He removed from us our transgressions. He's remitted. It is in remission. Now we hear the word remission and we think perhaps medically and what we fear is, well, we realize this, don't we? When cancer goes into remission, although relatively speaking, people speak of it being cured, in reality, for many people, it's the sad thought Eventually, this is going to come back. It's in remission. Maybe I'll die of other causes. But there's a high chance, high probability, that this which is said to be in remission will return. Brethren, here's the good news of... really is taken away. It really is forgiven. Why? Because the offering up of Christ is effective. This is the whole point of this chapter. And this leads us to the third point, that this is the final offering. There is no more offering for sin. Why? Because all of our sin is remitted, forgiven, pardoned, removed, by the offering up of Christ. Someone says, well, time out. You know, my sins happened after the sacrifice of Christ. And that's true. But the sacrifice of Christ in the arrangement of God was a sacrifice for those sins. Just as the Old Testament believer had their sins and they're saying, you know what? My sins aren't yet fully atoned for. And they look toward Christ to come and found peace that way, we commit new sins and we confess the Savior who has made atonement for them. Christ's offering answers all of our sins. Christian says, I understand that, but I still get convicted. And this isn't to deny conviction. It's rather to display how we're to deal with our conviction. We're not to deal with our conviction by seeking a new atonement. 
And brethren, I trust by God's grace that you and I are free from the ideas of turning the Lord's Supper into a new sacrifice or anticipating some sort of new sacrifice to come still. But there's a subtle way in which you and I can turn things into virtual sacrifices. And so, for instance, we become convicted of our sins and there's this creeping in of the old covenant that is the covenant of works by which we think, well, look what I've done. I've got to earn it off. I've got to work it off. And so what do you do? God, I'm guilty of this sin. What I'm going to do to make it right is I'm going to start reading the Bible more. What I'm going to do to make it right is I'm never going to speak another profane word. Now, brethren, we ought to read the Bible and we ought to abstain from profane speech. But let's be clear. None of that does anything to remit our sins. The forgiveness of our sins is solely by the once offering up of Christ as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. The language of our catechism so beautifully represents the language of Scripture gathering not only Hebrews, but Romans and the Gospels and the preaching in Acts and so forth. The thought together that Christ has made a true atonement through His sacrifice. And as it is a true atonement, there's no more sacrifice needed. Yes, we sin. Yes, our consciences sense the guilt. So what do we do? We don't look to a new sacrifice. We look newly to the old sacrifice and say, there is my peace with God. It's in what Christ has accomplished. In one sense, when we sin, it's not a perfect statement, but in one sense, when we sin, we discover a new sin for which Christ has atoned. And so what do we do with that new discovery? We don't say, oh, it's a new sin that God has forgiven through Christ. No, as John says, when we sin, we're to confess our sins. And God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why? Because God has set forth Christ to be the propitiation of our sins. So we don't laissez-faire hands off, sort of carelessly skip through our sins. We bemoan our sins. Because we realize it's this for which Christ suffered. But we don't say it's this for which Christ will suffer. We say it's this for which Christ suffered. And so we discover, oh, the wretchedness of our sin. We acknowledge it, confessing it unto God as sin. But we look again to Christ who was sacrificed for sin that by Him we would have peace. Remember as this Lord's Supper is to be done, remember the language, in remembrance of Me. And so it looks back to the once and final sacrifice of sin. Well, this tells us much. One, it tells us of the immeasurable dignity and power and ability of our Savior. Brethren, think of this for a moment. It doesn't matter. We can think of it perhaps in a quantitative way. You know, someone's life might fill a book of all of their sins. Now, obviously, it's stained darkly because of original sin. Someone's life may fill three volumes of a book of sin. Some may have whole libraries 
of books of sin. But understand this for a moment. Whatever amount of sins, whatever number of sins that you've committed, if we can think of it merely in a quantifiable uh, manner, every single page and every single statement in that book is sufficient to damn your soul for all eternity. Every one. Every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. The wages of sin is death. Damnation awaits those who sin. Now understand that for a moment. If you had but one page on which was one sentence identifying one sin, and you took that page before God with some hope, well, it's just one sin, surely it's not that big of a deal. You have to remember that one sin is against the infinite glory of the eternal God who alone is worthy of nothing but worship, love, devotion, service, and you would be plunged to hell to endure forever the agony of destruction. Now what shall you and I do with whole volumes full of it? Now why do we labor this point? Because you want to see the dignity of Christ, the power of Christ, the ability of Christ. He takes all the volumes, inclusive of all of our sins. He takes all the volumes, not only of mine, but of yours. And not only of yours, but of all Christians. And in the once offering up of Himself, such is His purity, such is His perfection, such is the dignity that is there conveyed to the suffering of His human body, that He is able to satisfy God's divine justice forever in the once offering up of Himself. So think on that statement in verse 14. For by one offering, He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. One reason we so little esteem Christ compared to how we should esteem Him is because of how little we think of sin, which in turn makes us think little of But when once we understand the enormity of sin, then it is we wonder at the enormity of His work in love for us in this once and final offering up of Himself to satisfy divine justice for us. Believer, when we understand this final offering, this effective offering, this true offering, we discover freshly a cause of endless love to Christ. We understand because we are infirm and prone to weakness and struggles ourselves, but sometimes we hear people say, you know, I, I just I sort of think that heaven sounds a bit boring. You know, it's it's just this when I see the scriptures, it's just a portrayal of a constant fixation upon Christ. Now, we don't want to jump and say, oh well, you know, you're just not uber spiritual. Because let's be honest, we've struggled with those thoughts. We've wondered in our thoughts, you know, is there something a bit better? Or isn't there something more? But when it is that our minds are enlightened with both the vileness of our sins and what they deserve, and then 
with the wonder of Christ's love and willing work on our behalf, it's then that we get a glimpse, even if we can't sustain it for the whole of a minute, for the whole of an hour, for the whole of a day, we get a glimpse of why it is the souls of believers at their death, which are made perfect, entering into the paradise of God, never cease worshiping Christ. And why it is that at the resurrection, our souls and bodies united again, made perfect, shall never cease worshiping Christ. We get a glimpse of it, a taste of it. A morsel hits, as it were, the tongue of our souls. And the sweetness is there. And in the transient ways of passingness that we live in, it too aids us to have a full grip upon the beauty of Christ for all time. But brethren, when once we taste it, our souls have the assurance of why it is that a believer in heaven never ceases to give thanks and praise unto Christ. And think of this for a moment. In one sense, it is able to be said, they ceaselessly praise Christ for one act. One thing done. Now, of course, there's much that goes into that one act. His words, His righteousness, and so on. But there's a sense in which, and you can hear it in the way that Revelation speaks of the Lamb, worthy as the Lamb of God, which was slain. Think of it, who's washed us from our sins with His blood. There's a fixation upon that one act by which all of the other works of Christ, as it were, are united. And so we fix our souls upon the crucified Savior who has risen and ascended. I am He that was dead, but behold, I'm alive forevermore. What did Paul preach? I preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What is the Lord's Supper doing for us? It's bringing to our attention this one offering to be in remembrance, to be intensely forced, as it were, most graciously and graciously to be voluntarily received. Oh, the beauty and harmony of God's sovereignty coming together that our souls would have that which satisfies our souls for all eternity. The display of the love of God to us in the most extreme and magnificent, royal and majestic way that ever could be displayed. The love of God to us in Christ Jesus. Brethren, here is peace amid our convictions. We ought to feel a number of things, but as we feel, we ought to feel pity for those who try to find peace to their conscience by denying God, by denying sin, by denying the justice of God, by denying the reality of hell. Because realize this, though there are other things we ought to feel about it, those, if they continue in that, will one day awaken to the grief unending that their sins which they thought of as little and small of the God which they pretended wasn't clearly manifested around them, the justice of God which was clearly threatened and open before them, 
they will one day awaken to the fact that those things are realities. And apart from the Lord's grace in this life, they shall experience the unending grief of the pains of hell forever. But brethren, what about you? You who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ by His grace are those who will never cease to be enamored with the love of God to you. Think of this intimate way Paul says it. That it is that he thanks God who loved Him. He thanks God for Jesus Christ. Think of this language. Who loved me and gave Himself for me. Is he denying the organic unity of the whole of the church? By no means. But he's acknowledging that as Christ gave Himself for the whole of the body, the whole of the church, the whole of the bride, that also means He gave Himself for me. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we can have this on our mind. There's one lump, there's a bread loaf, there's one cup, and it's reminding us of the one offering of Christ. There are many seats around the table. And so there are many there for whom Christ gave Himself. And yet among the actions of the sacrament is one of the most intimate moments that the soul can ever know in this life. For with the Word of Christ before us, we hear Christ say, this is My body broken for you. This do in remembrance of Me. This cup is the New Testament in My blood. Drink ye all of it in remembrance of Me. These things put before us. And then what do we do? We take the bread and we eat it personally. We take the cup and we drink it personally. By which action we're saying that once offering up of Christ, of Himself, to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God is a once offering up of Himself for me. To satisfy God's divine justice for me. To reconcile me to God. He did it in love for me. Now, this doesn't mean he doesn't do it, doesn't do it for all of us. But brethren, there's intimacy in this. What he did for all his people, he did for individuals. And what he did for the individual, he did for all his people. When we start to understand the offering up of Christ, we see both the cause of personal and overwhelming delight in the love of God to me. But, we also have a cause for sincere love to one another. Because if you go back to this illustration, you see all of those books upon books upon books, and we think of the books in front of us documenting all of our sins, and we wonder that now it should be removed from us, and when we say, how is it so? And as it were, the Father would point to the Son and say, He took it upon Himself. And all of those books that were before all of our forefathers in the faith. And we wonder, who did this? He did it. Why did He do it? He did it out of the Father's love to His people. He did it out of His own love to the people. He did it out of the triune God's love for the people. And so we stand, both those who should have been condemned in strictest and personal justice, but each of us the object of God's saving love, so that we have cause to look upon one another, Jew and Gentile, black and white, 
this country, that country, this level, that level, all the differences in this world aside, we look upon ourselves as brethren loved of God whose sins all would weigh us down to hell, but whose sins all have been removed from us by the once offering up of Christ so that now there is no more offering for sin. As we close, this gives us some guidance for next week, among other things said, that we do not come to the Lord's table for a new offering. We come in remembrance of the true, effective, and final offering, rejoicing that our sins, by the blood which was shed, all of them are pardoned. And so we may eat and drink with comfort and peace, rejoicing in Christ who loved us and gave Himself for us. Would you stand with me for prayer?